This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join me. Today I will be speaking with writer Alice Lichtenstein, author of several novels, including her new one, The Crime of Being. Alice and I met when she participated in a reading I produce and curate every year. It's called Brava, and it gathers together writers to read pieces about the roles of bras in our lives. The event raises brand new bras for people who don't have them. Last year at the event, Alice brought her new novel for me as a gift. I went home, opened it, and was hooked from the opening page. The book is, as I said, The Crime of Being, published by the marvelous indie Upper Hand Press. Her previous novels, The Genius of the World and Lost, are both the recipients of several awards and terrific reviews. Her short stories have appeared in Narrative Magazine, Post Road, and Short Story. Alice lives in Oneonta, New York, where she teaches fiction writing at Hartwood College. Welcome, Alice. It's a joy to be back together. And it's thrilling to be here. Delighted to have you. So as I said in the intro, we met through Brava, a curated reading I produce each year, and you read a poem in last year's Brava. It was called Boob Song, and it was a marvel. <laughs> yeah, just a marvel. Uh, if only you knew how hard it was for me to actually say that word out loud, you'd be surprised. <laughs> the, the word song? I don't get no, it, No, no, the word, the word boob. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was a, a, the prude of prudes as a as a, a girl and a young woman, so I, um, you know, I've evolved. That's funny. Yes. That's funny. Well, let's just talk about that kind of performance, because how important is it for writers to be diverse? I mean, you write short stories and novels, but you were willing to travel from Oneonta, New York, <laughs> to where I was uh, to be part of that experience. And I, I really want to encourage writers to think about the, what part of the life requires the courage, um, and and so to write not to write poems like that, what goes into that process, and and why did you show up? What a wonderful question. Well, it goes back a little bit. Um, the first time I heard about Brava, I was listening to you uh, on WAMC, and. As you were discussing uh, the call for submissions for this absolutely amazing project, I was sitting there going, I could never, ever, ever write about the most traumatic experience of my life, which has to do with bras. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, I was just mm -hmm. literally like, I could never. And of course, as a writer, whenever you come across that experience of, I can't do this, I'm too scared, if you're... <clears throat> honest or something, I don't know what, you go, okay, oh dear, uh, that means I actually have to write about this. <laughs> so I, I did. I, 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 I wrote, I mean, the first, the first time I appeared at Bravo, I actually wrote a personal essay, which is something I'm terrified mm -hmm. of writing, not, let alone writing about bras. It was writing an essay. I'm a, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool fiction writer. And um, so 
when the next call for submissions came along, I went, oh, you know, I, I guess I've said everything I've ever needed to say about bras. I can't submit to this again. And then all of a sudden <laughs> popped into my head this yeah. what I would call a prose poem. I, I would be really, uh, mm -hmm. I have many poet friends, and I'm sure they're cringing if I call my work poetry. But um, anyway, to my absolute delight, uh, you accepted it. And what you don't know is that you've gone on and inspired another prose poem. And I've just done a collaboration with wonderful photographer Andrea Modica. You might know her work. And uh, she mm -hmm. has a photograph, a platinum print of a bra, and she asked me to write an ekphrastic response, and I have, and oh, that's great. now going off to a gallery. So I'm like, wow. <laughs> this is fabulous. Yeah. So go, the counterphobia thing is very real. Yes. We talk about it. Yes. And I talk to my students all the time about writing from counterphobia. It's the greatest place to write from, I would say. But yes. when I say that, I'm met with mixed responses, but yours is a great <laughs> response right there, which is that as soon yeah. as you feel that terror, you yeah. know you're going there. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And it's not exactly. just braggadocio. It's it's that yeah. I can't resist it. It should be gone. It, right. It's something about, it's an invitation to yeah. write from a place of what? Terror? And well, I, another way I look at it is, um, well, I, I teach fiction at Hartwick College, as you mentioned. And mm -hmm. I also, you know, try to uh, open my experience my students' uh, minds to the idea that where it scares you, you need to explore. And that's often go. where the, um, you know, the red hot center of the work is. And I, I don't know if in you, I imagine you probably do some free writing with your students as I do. And I ask them to circle at one point the two or three sentences that they would keep if everything else had to be scrapped. And that's what I call mm -hmm. the clunk. You know, it's where the center of energy is. And by and large, people mm -hmm. find it. And if it isn't there, then I say, okay, write it. Just what what is it that you're writing around? Just what what scares you, you know? So I, wow, I, had, to, I had to face that myself. In fact, I actually thought about that going, okay, I tell my students to do this. I better do it myself, <laughs> you know? Well, um, I think it's evident in this new novel. I mean, there's a lot of mm -hmm. courage because you stepped into one of the hottest hotspots of our time when choosing to write your most recent novel. And mm -hmm. I've read in interviews with you that it came out of this hate crime that mm -hmm. occurred in all places, of, of all places in Cooperstown, New York, which is one of the quietest, loveliest towns in America. It's home of the Baseball Hall of Fame and the, the summer opera, the Glimmer Glass Opera. Not the kind of place one expects for racial violence to erupt, but in 2010 it did. And so this happens every day to writers. We read about something and we have this response. We want to do something about it. So tell us a little bit about the crime and then we'll talk about the idea of responding. Okay. So uh, a couple of things I'd like to say. Um, though the initial incident, the hate crime, did take place in Cooperstown, um, it was very important to me. And this is one of the things that I've... Uh, said a lot in my introductions to readings. There's a huge difference for fiction writers, of course, um, between fiction and nonfiction. And, uh, but I'm finding that my audiences often are much uh, fuzzier on what the difference is. So what I like to explain is that uh, for a fiction writer, for a novelist, while I 
research some of the actual facts of what happened. I, 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 for one thing, decided only to use what was public record. Um, and that was because, as a fiction writer, I'm interested in the interiority of characters. I want to step into mm -hmm. a character's head. And from that point on, it is complete fiction. I also give myself permission uh, just to invent and so many, I mean, just about everything in this novel is invented other than a certain sort of scaffolding of, yes, there was a uh, white-on-black hate crime uh, in a small town that would otherwise, as you say, just idyllic, uh, picturesque town, and and the fact that that came out of the blue, you know, as what seemed to be completely out of a context. As, as, the, as a novelist... Um, you know, many, many things struck me, but one was a fascination interest in the aftermath of a crime and how a community is affected, and then inventing all mm -hmm. the characters in that community, and they are invented. So the actual, in the actual crime, the, uh, there was a, a white teenager uh, who went after and pursued... A, the only black uh, teenager in the high school um, pursued him one afternoon with a gun and shot him, fortunately did not kill him, and uh, then attempted to kill himself. And uh, that, those, that's the basic outline of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. So you read about this. Yes, I read about this. Right. Absolutely. You read this. You have a response. Did you mm -hmm. know immediately that it was a book-length piece, that it was not a short story or a poem mm. or an essay? Mm. So let's talk about that response you had. Did you say, oh, there's a novel there? What did you say to yourself? That, that's just a wonderful question. So first of all, um, I am you know, very aware of and um, horrified by the rise in hate crimes in this country. And though this event happened eight years ago, and, and um, I felt that because I also live in upstate New York and have an understanding of what a small community in upstate New York is like, having lived in upstate New York now for almost 30 years, um, that... I had some, I, I wanted to have more insight into this experience. And I did feel it was a sort of a microcosm of what's happening across the country. I also, though, and this is, I think, important for the, for the novelist listening, um, I, I sometimes tell the story, if, if I was John Krakauer, <clears throat> well, one, I'd be mm -hmm. extremely wealthy, but moving along. Um, uh, I would have gone about this interviewing every single actual person, um, you know, anchoring every detail, I mean, and, and writing it, the story in beautiful prose, but it would be uh, reporting. It would be nonfiction and journalism. Fiction writer, I have no interest 
in that kind of record. And one of the reasons is that as a fiction writer, we're talking about looking at sort of universal human experience. And as I said before, the interior life of the characters and that you are not given permission to do when you're a journalist because (laughs) that's made up. You don't know that. So... um, Mm -hmm. I'd like to point that out, that this is a novelist's response to an incident, not a journalist or even a nonfiction writer's response. Mm-hmm. And was it that I, I want that? I, I mean, it's a, one of the things that we didn't talk about is that in the, in the case and in yes. your book, we get this majority opinion shift that mm-hmm. the the national me- news media cast Cooperstown as racist, and but what happens in the story in both the story in both stories, um, there's public opinion that goes in various directions that are surprising, and it makes a great story, but it's also a burden to carry that around all the time as a writer. And mm-hmm. so when you decide to write about it, does that burden shift a bit? I mean, do you are you able to say, well, I'm going to get control of the story. I'm going to fictionalize it. I'm going to deal with it. Because in its reality, it's a horrible tale of racism. Yeah. But as yes. you get your hands on it, does does the burden of it become different? That's such an interesting term, the burden of it. I, I certainly appreciate it. Um, I do also want to go back to another choice, though. It, it's not fictionalizing um, what happened. It's it's a much more of a remove than that. Fictionalizing what happened, mm-hmm. in my mind, would have meant that um, I knew the actual people, or I knew or, you know when when these characters mm-hmm. are invented. Right. So that's very important to me. Um, uh, as a, it's, it sounds subtle, but it's it's I think very important. Um, no, I think, the, and I appreciate yeah, the distinction, yeah. and I think that people, other people will as well. Good. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. So in terms of the burden of it, um, I feel the burden of it, so to speak, as being the burden of trying to understand the kind of hate that's happening in this country. And I've also someone having lived, as again, in upstate for a long time, I would say I've had the privilege of getting to know a lot of different people from all kinds of uh, uh, economic classes in in upstate New York and so on. Um, And so I've been well aware of what I think is an interesting irony, you know, that irony that um, the the quote from one point of view, the bad people have actually depths of of goodness and the good people actually have areas of complete blindness and cruelty. And that the more Mm -hmm. we look at people and their universality in terms of we're all suffering, we all have the capacity to love, um, that looking at that level of of how people uh, exist in the world is what's really, really important to me. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. when you read the book, you'll come across so many, it's not a, it's not a polemic, you will come across so many different levels of irony in the characters, in the situations, in what people are faced with. So to me, that's in, in a way relieving the burden of having to be someone who only lives in um, a certain bubble of of truth and a certain bubble of reality and so on. I'm as a writer, 
I want to see as much as possible and I want to understand as much as possible about the human experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard, I find, in this life to get real support when you make choices like that. It's hard to, at dinner parties, everybody wants to talk to the writer but then when you start to actually ask for support for writing a story mm-hmm. and you pitch the ideas to colleagues, family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you get a lot of blank looks or mm-hmm. they don't really know how to help you. It's, it's very difficult to support someone else's idea. And does anyone understand mm-hmm. when you start this process and, and what kind of help can you really expect from someone else when you yourself are taking on the burden of this idea and its fictional life? Wow, Marianne, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that question. It's, it's, it's such a, I mean, obviously, of course, you're a writer, so you, you can ask a question like that. Um, so I was actually, I have to say, uh, immensely secretive about the novel and the topic of the novel for the last eight years. And um, I had to protect myself. I, uh, I, and it's also something that I tell my writing students all the time, that you continually have to give yourself permission. Um, so I, in this case, uh, really had to keep giving myself permission to um, think about some of the mentors I've had, uh, one of them being the uh, late uh, Nobel Prize winning poet Derek Walcott, who was, who was one of my teachers in graduate school, who you know, always said, How wonderful. Saying, you know, write what scares you and, and you just do it, you know? And so that, that, those kinds of voices helped. And then I had two friends who were not writers um, who were reading draft after draft after draft and really tr- deeply supportive of of the work and i i do think it would have been almost impossible to write the book if they hadn't been so generous in their reading time and frankly you know as a writer there there're certain stages where all you actually want to hear is oh it's great even if it's crap you know and then <laughs> and another i mean at least that's me and i actually i'm so i'm so obvious oh, wait, about wait, it that, i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when does that stage end exactly? I'm okay, sorry, I no, didn't realize no, that's, no. that was a stage. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a stage. Well, for me, and I should only speak for myself, it is a stage where I actually hand the thing to someone. I go, um, no matter how bad it is, please tell me you really liked it. And they kind of look at me like, really? Okay, do I even no, have to read great. it? Well, you know, pretend to read it. And then mm-hmm. there's a certain point for me that's sometimes years down the road where I say, I'm ready, rip it to shreds kill it. You know, I want to know every single thing you see. And that's when I'm ready for that stage. But yeah, I'm like a baby. I, I need to be like sort of, oh, yes, Alice, it's a really interesting characters. It's great voice. Okay, thank you. You know, and then I rewrite, you know, <laughs> completely. I'd say, no, it's crap, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's okay, great. I'm weird. I'm, I I'm a it. more, I'm sort of a cannibal. I'm sort of a cannibal during all periods of writing and feeding on myself because, I mean, no one understands what you're setting out to do. And while yes. I have a husband of many years who has, cre- he has created, worked on, and almost perfected a face that looks almost <laughs> interested, I-, I totally know it's a facade. I mean, how can it not be a facade? I'm throwing down words 
that are enthusiastic over yeah. an idea that is yet I, to be written. It's I, not I like I, you. I, you know, I put a, an <laughs> ashtray that I made in, in pottery it's, down on the right. table. So it totally comes down to me. And I go to the gym, I read, I talk <laughs> to the dog. But it's, it's just, it's this cannibalizing my own enthusiasms all the time. Yeah. It's the only way yeah. I can describe it. Nobody yeah. gets it. My, yeah. All my friends are writers. I'm very lucky. Yeah. But still, yeah. when it comes down to it, you've got you to gotta love that fear, I think. I think oh, you have to absolutely. love it. On, like a it's, friend. Yeah. Right? I must say, I've always yeah. wished I had the, the tough skin and that I could just say, you know, I have a tough skin. It's just not ever quite tough enough. What can I say? Except in the end, when I'm ready. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. The the upside to being so super sensitive and seeing and hearing things in the world that you can respond to on a level that, that's commensurate with writing has a, has a downside, which is that you don't have a tough yeah. skin. If you had a tough it's, skin, and I, and I don't believe that any writer actually has a tough skin or else yeah. it wouldn't permeate. That's, that's and our job point. is to react. Yeah. Yeah, our job is to point. react. Yeah. So, so let's talk about some of the technical technical complexities of all this. Yes. Um, the, as you've made very clear that you didn't fictionalize this thing, the actual incident was just an initial inspiration, let's say. Exactly. And then you've got to invent the characters and their backstories mm -hmm. and imagine mm -hmm. living from their points of view and their mm -hmm. truths. In other words, you had to set out into the unknown. And writing right. a novel based on an event that happened you you have this visceral response as we talked about and some people might say that's a crazy thing to do right <laughs> but we i mean it is when you think about the in terms of it being a product that you're making you're actually making something that will someday be a physical product but the production experience is damn strange isn't it <laughs> Well, God, I wish there had been someone who tell me that it was crazy to do in the beginning. I, I could have been written on a different novel all these years, right? Um, yeah, right. Um, well, there are a couple of things in terms of uh, I'm going to – because this is a novel I feel like I can talk about, you know, s structure and, and some choices that I made that uh, un mm -hmm. unlike my other novels, I would say um, – a few things, and this may sound crass, but I'm going to put it out there for your writing audience. Um, I had become a fan of some of the really great television, um, such as you know, Breaking Bad and Homeland and um, some of these uh, sort of, I would say, particularly with Breaking Bad, uh, television that has actually changed uh, television for me at, into an art form. And I was interested in why people are so hooked on these, this kind of show, including myself. So, of course, one of the things that was lovely to discover, of course, is they're very interesting characters. You're hooked by the characters. But the other thing that I thought was really important was the pacing. And I thought to myself, you know, there's no reason why a literary fiction novel cannot be paced um, in that same gripping way that a uh, limited HBO series or, you know, or a, you know, wonderful series like, you know, Breaking Bad. Uh, why not? And the other thing I was thinking about is I looked at my own, uh, my own reading habits and I see, okay, I am one of those people who, unless I'm on some idyllic vacation, and <clears throat> I'm not sure when that happens, um, read 15 minutes before I go to bed. So I thought, I want to write something that is so compelling that uh, people really don't want to put it down. In fact, my ideal reader, 
thinks that they're reading 15 minutes before going to bed and then goes, oh, hell, I, 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 can't, I can't put this down. I, I'm going to call in sick tomorrow. Or I'm just going to be sleep deprived, whatever it takes. <laughs> I have to finish this book. Um, I'm happy to report there have been a few people like that. More people say, no, I, I just like reading the 15 minutes before bed, but whatever. Anyway, um, so the short chapters, um, the pacing of the chapters were actually conscious, which in, in generally speaking, I'm not someone who would even give myself that kind of uh, criteria to, to work on, you know. So I just put that out there because there must have also been something, when I think about it, uh, about the real life aspects of it that made me feel as though it could be uh, cinematic or or move in that kind of with that kind of pacing have a structure that is not what I typically think of as my narrative structure. I love that because I found it, and this is just true, almost impossible to put down because I found the rush of it to be very real. And now that you explain it, it is like a binge watch in its yeah. in its invitation. It feels like. <gasps> I, I, oh, I, I have to keep going. So I did have a fairly quick but completely sturdy experience with it. I don't want you right. to think it was like potato chips. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love that when people tell me that they learn something from watching yeah. contemporary television. Yeah. Or yeah. I once redid an entire book after I saw the movie Any Given Sunday, which is a movie about football, ostensibly, <laughs> Oliver, what's his name? And yeah. it was shot in this really interesting way that made me re reposition an entire book. So I oh, completely that's get wonderful. That. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it needed to be shot from the field as opposed to shot from the mm-hmm. above. And I didn't know mm-hmm. it till I was sitting through the movie and I thought, I get it. I know exactly. It was a book. I got to spend two years behind the scenes in the world of forensic science. And if you did oh, it from the pulpit, it was yes. going to be like every other book, but I wanted right. you to go with me into the body bag. So oh, awesome. I didn't know that until yeah. I watched the movie. So there you oh. go. I'm going to use so that with my students unless been, you have a podcast on it. <laughs> you can Great. use that with your students uh, anytime. Go, you yeah. know, take, love that. I take all the yeah. help I can get. I'm a great yeah. believer in having my heart open all the time to lessons because this is not an easy thing to do. Me too. And speaking of them, you, I read in an interview with you that you learned a really big lesson. You, you had the great good fortune to attend the McDowell colony twice in Peterborough, New Hampshire. And for those people who don't know about this experience, (laughs) you get your own cottage. They cook their meal, they cook the meals for you. You get to work. But you you introduced this idea in this one interview I read with you that after this you re-enter the real world and you crash. <laughs> and so oh, after so the second you time yeah. you went <laughs> Oh yeah. And after the second time you said you went, you said you had to rethink your creative process. So what did you do when you rethought your creative process? Okay. So, of course, shout out to McDowell. It is a place that makes you feel like you are um, God's gift to your creative art. And, and you know, if you can get a six weeks of that, um, you get a lot of work done. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an amazing mm-hmm. place. However, um, I experience, and, uh, you know, everyone I know who's been to McDowell, several people, have the, it's, you know, the McDow- after McDowell uh, blues and you go into a deep depression because when you do get back to your, you know, studio apartment in uh, 
Brooklyn, you discover that actually you're not God's gift. I mean, no one else thinks you're God's gift to your creative field except for the McDowell staff, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And I decided I was not going to be someone who was dependent on uh, an arts colony to get my work done. And I analyzed what was it about McDowell, aside from the picnic basket on your back doorstep, um, that made it possible for me to get so much work done. Yeah, I mean, that's nice, you know, hey. Uh, but wow. now the days with, you know, Grubhub or something, I think you could still have that arranged if you, you know. Anywho, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I looked at it, and what it came down to was, sounds really simple, turning off the phone, you know, and mm-hmm. really turning off the phone, um, power off mm-hmm. everything. And the other thing I decided was um, that I couldn't afford to allow, you know, to sort of futzy around until the muse struck and and then flutter over to the keys and, and, and sort of write something, you know? <laughs> Just wasn't working. And um, yeah. so I... I said, okay, you know, it's a discipline. And I put it in my, I mean, again, this all sounds like suddenly I've become a time management person. But, you know, I, I wrote down in my, my calendar, you know, it's, it's, I happen to write usually 10 to 2, four hours. Um, I think that's four hours. I'm not very good at counting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, five days a week. I don't write on the weekends. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's what I do. At the same time, and I want to make this very clear, because I think that writing should never feel like a prison. There have also been times in my life where I was so disciplined that I was in hell and I didn't get anything done that way. So what I ultimately did is created a much more disciplined um, way of writing. At the same time, I think the more you write, the more you, um, you start to trust that writing is a process. It really is. And for instance, this past year, um, I'm alarmed to think that I actually haven't really, I haven't written except for my little prose poems um, for the last year. It doesn't feel like a year. But but I am writing because I now am someone who so thoroughly trusts my unconscious that I, I know that it's work and work and working. There are two novels I'm already planning to sit down and, you know, write. But um, I'm not in a state of panic. I'm not blocked. I'm just, this is, this is giving yourself total permission to be in a creative process. And it really is that. But I think that, again, unless you've laid that foundation, unless you trust, you get to a point where you really do trust that you are uh, a writer and that you're always writing, then, then that might not be as easy to do. So I would start with, the, start with getting a really nice um, discipline and then ultimately always give yourself permission the times you're not writing you're writing once you're once you're doing you know once you have that does that make any sense <laughs> such good advice it makes a great deal of sense and i'm so grateful to have it i think it's so helpful to people so thank yeah. you alice and and thank you so much for the book for the books and i can't wait to see your next uh, bra experience oh i can't wait to show bra-bra. it to you i'm really excited <laughs> Good. Well, thank you. And thanks for listening. The author is Alice Lichtenstein. Her novels are found wherever books are sold. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. 
Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. Want more on the art and craft of writing? Come visit me at marionroach.com and take a class. Thank you.